Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. We've got a special feature this week. Last week I talked with Dave Gallanter about the Voyager episode Remember and its themes of racism and genocide. And today is the 25th anniversary of the air date of Duet, the excellent DS9 episode that we covered earlier this year, which examines similar themes to Remember, namely the afterimages of atrocity in a society. And so I figured, let's keep going. Let's commemorate that with some more heavy Trek talk. I've got an inspiring interview with Eleanor Tremere today, who is an editor and writer on sci-fi and genre fiction, as well as issues of race, gender, and sexuality in genre entertainment. And she'll be on a future episode of Enterprising Individuals to talk Deep Space Nine. But today, we're talking about the heady issues present in episodes like Remember and Duet. We'll also talk about her experiences living in Berlin, Trek's uncanny resemblance to Gulliver's Travels, the persistence of denial, of some of history's greatest genocides and atrocities. Uh, Eleanor's from the UK, so we spend a little time unpacking our own patriotic regrets about our respective empire's whoopsies. We talk about the responsibility of remembrance. We even get into a little discovery and enterprise talk. And you get to hear two different pronunciations of the word clerk, or Clark, as they say for some reason. It'll be a full-length interview, so no news today, but I'll be back at the end of the show to give you a little more info on where you can find Eleanor and to let you know where we're headed on next week's show. Genocide, racism, misery, trust me, it'll be fun in a circumspect way. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get underway. Gene Roddenberry saw Gulliver's Travels as an inspiration for the series, the original series. Um, Going so far as to, uh, at one point, they actually wanted to name the show Gulliver's Travels and name the mm-hmm. captain, Captain Gulliver. They did change their minds, but they kept that spirit of Gulliver's Travels intact, um, namely the political and social satire that uh, is in the book. And I guess I should say, if anybody doesn't know, I mean, it is a bit old at this point, but uh, Gulliver's Travels is a you know book by Jonathan Swift. He's an Irish satirist. Uh, it's about a guy named Gulliver duh, who travels to different fantastic lands. Uh, and I think he's on a ship. And, you know, before it's funny because I think before all the maps were filled in, all the um, the Odyssey type stories um, where you sail to some weird island and there's weird people there. That was like the original space travel story. You know, you'd end up on some weird island or there's some continent that we haven't figured out or you go inside the Earth or something like that or to the North Pole. Um, and you reach a different land. Now we just have planets and space travel. Like, that's just a space story now. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of the sort of exploratory adventuring um, stories from the, especially the Victorian era, where the globalization was kind of beginning, and that's kind of where you get Gulliver and stuff like that. And we've just, the the Earth is discovered now. We know what's out there. There's So, yeah, I guess now it's just become about going out into the stars instead. Just yeah, and even cool. like early space movies were like this island Earth, you know, or um, isn't uh, Forbidden Planet is like a, a gloss on the Tempest, mm. basically, yeah, you know, from Shakespeare, which itself is like a shipwreck story. So anyway, like Gulliver, he'd end up um, in the land of the Lilliputians or the Brobdenagians, and they're either really big or really small, and they have strange laws, and they all represent like political groups in Enlightenment England or something like that. Oh, my goodness. It's it's all satire, you know, that's that's totally removed from the present day. Like, you have to have, like, a history book alongside, you know, the book to understand what's going on. Did you ever read Gulliver's Travels? You can answer safely because I never did. <laughs> no, I didn't. Uh, there was that weird movie that was on quite a lot on the BBC when I was growing up. Um, so, obviously, I remember the scene where he gets tied down. But the thing is, that's in, like, every... I was actually watching Gravity Falls the other day with my niece, which is a children's um, animated show. <laughs> And they did a reference to Gulliver's travel travels in the first okay. episode, and I was like, sure. because she gets tied down with by uh, by tiny gnomes. And I was just like, this is just sailing over my niece's head, but I'm enjoying it. <laughs> and it, <laughs> and I think that that's 
every reference to it is just a reference to a reference to it. Like I, <laughs> yeah. I wonder how many people have actually read it at this point. But mm. um, anyway, you can see how that would map onto Star Trek. You know, you sail. Sorry, you you warp to some funny planet. Uh, the guys are black on one side of their faces and white on the other, or <laughs> vice versa. Uh, and you get bingo. It's you got a race metaphor. Yeah, yeah. And what fascinates me is that how um, it's just how that kind of storytelling has matured under Trek's watch. It's still doing that, but it's doing it better. Like there's the famous edict from Roddenberry in the 60s that humanity had solved all of its problems. And so there's going to be no conflict between the human characters. Thank you very much. Mm. <laughs> um, and so in this scenario, we, that is humanity, we're the baseline. So we're going to visit other places and they're all screwed up. You know, we're looking at it through that lens. They're having virtual wars where people die for real or oh no nazi planet (laughs) as trek goes to the next generation uh so to speak uh we we start to get more fallible heroes and more looks into whether humanity's really figured it all out or we're we're dealing with the same problems um you've got picard has to kick some native americans off a planet uh, and that's a problem or you put like data's humanity on trial like if we're evolved as humans can we see emerging life as human or as humanity um, itself, you know, the entirety of DS9, you got the occupation of Bajor by the Cardassians, which stands mm. in for any number of similar events on Earth. Yes, it's funny how a lot of these allegories end up just being parallels to what happened on Earth. I mean, um, I guess Toss is very much more uh, on the nose about that. And um, this episode of Voyager that we're talking about, very on the nose to the point where it could it could just as well be talking about, um, you know, the, the Holocaust um, in Germany on earth um because they don't really go into enough detail um that's what i found anyway so you have the ones where it's like it's kind of expanding the idea like especially with emerging consciousnesses like with uh with data being on trial and everything and um yeah it's interesting that you brought up the um the expulsion of the native americans from their new home because that's that's sort of a development instead but um i think i think trek is at its strongest when it's using allegories as, as a jumping off point rather than just sort of shoving them in there and, and having that be enough and yeah. um i kind of felt that way with with remember that it was just a little bit too a little bit too light i felt like there was there was so much detail they could have gone into you barely know anything about the society at all and um it just there just wasn't enough there for me but it was also a very interesting very personal look at what was going on so i did enjoy it but um, a lot of voyager for me is just feels like a a bit of a throwback (laughs) yes um and uh the underdevelopment might be just the fact that they don't have a lot of time they've only got you know 45 minutes or whatever but it might also be on the voyager production uh which a lot of times is underdeveloped sometimes I think one of the problems of the cultural metaphor in Trek is that fact that it's only an hour long. So Mm. it's got to be and it's also, you know, it's popular TV, so it's got to be bite sized. So you've got the Yangs and the comms, you (laughs) know, or something like that, something very simple. Um, And we don't get time to really develop a a new picture because why bother? We're going to be somewhere else next week. And I feel like whenever we actually get a three dimensional picture of a society, it's usually because like they're extinct, like we're like in the inner light, like we're seeing Mm. this culture and they're already dead or have been dead for a long time uh or they're going to be destroyed by the end of the episode like we learn about a a people and oh they're so beautiful and so noble and a meteor is definitely going to hit the planet like at the end of this thing and and we're going to have to get them out of there or something Mm. there's this oversimplification so we can get to the conflicts true i am i find it interesting that you brought up the inner light because i was actually going to use that as well as a comparison where you had an episode and, and they did go into enough detail about the culture. So I feel like I feel like there was enough time in Remember to actually embellish things a bit more rather than just have the scenes of going in and out. Um, they could have spent more time on the place itself. I mean, if it was on today, that could easily go over a few episodes. You know, they, they meet these people because we don't even know why they met the Inarans in the first place. Um, right. Like they could have been introduced in one episode for one reason and then they're taking them to somewhere and then slowly you get to know them, and then over the course of a couple of episodes, all of this becomes clear, uh, and then they dump them back on the planet. Um, and then you could have developed on from there as well. I feel like that's just, yeah, that's that's a pitfall of, of episodic television for sure, uh, which um, I, I thought a lot about Voyager while I was watching it, because it's interesting how Deep Space Nine was very much pushing the envelope with serialized television, and, and you 
brought up the Cardassian occupation and everything, because that's a, a huge allegory for a lot of things that have happened on Earth. And they were yeah. able to use many, many, many seasons to explore that in a way that Trek had never done before. But obviously that put the uh, the network's nose out of joint. No one liked the serialization. They were always being pushed not to do that. So one of the reasons yeah. I think Voyager is incredibly episodic and is almost uh, a throwback to the next generation and, and feels even a little bit old-fashioned when it was airing was because the network just would not have allowed serialized storytelling in in two shows at once so it's i think it does it does okay with with what it's got in in this episode in particular and i think there's some great acting on display um as well so it was i enjoyed it yeah I, i think another reason that it feels like tng is that this plot is almost a direct lift of a plot from tng um, the episode Violations, I don't know if you remember that one. It's the one where some telepathic pe- creatures come on mm. board. It begins with them like uh, helping Keiko remember her grandmother making tea or something like that. And then it goes into um, like there's basically like mind rapes going on. Oh, yeah, it's terrible. What I yeah. liked about this was how cognizant they were at the beginning that it was this was going on. Like there wasn't yes. any kind of denial. Oh, you're just having a dream. Immediately they were right. like, we've got telepathic aliens on board. This is probably due to them. And I was like, yeah, thank you. you. Have to, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you have to this... hand it to the crew and to uh, Janeway as a captain because you're right. Like that would be at least two and a half acts in. Mm. Somebody would finally believe Troy and it would definitely be Troy. That would, that oh, would be Troy story for sure <laughs> but yeah. I do feel like the Federation probably would have had some kind of rules about telepathic uh, relations by this point I mean if you've got a bunch of telepathic species as part and even the Vulcans have very strict rules about telepathy when, and they help found the Federation sure. I, I feel like that's like a lack of world building on the writers part because the Federation is supposed to be this very sort of diplomatic very kind of rule heavy um, and it's supposed to be the kind of civilization that wants to avoid stuff like this. And every time something like this happens, it's like, oh, whoops, someone kind of got mind raped again. Oh, well, it's like. Um... <laughs> so, well, there's a uh, there's a. Oh, um, were you going to say something? Go ahead. I was going to um, ask you what you thought about the thematic elements of the episode. I think they're right on. I think that they it, it's a, an important story that needs to be told. I think that it's sort of shaped perfectly in this episode because it's something we've heard before but I think it's something that we need to keep telling ourselves and keep reminding ourselves that things like this happen and the the setup of the episode is perfect because it's this great sci-fi conceit I mean you could have a situation and Voyager has returned to the theme of genocide several times there's Mm. um there's another episode called um Memorial I believe uh where the crew is experiencing these weird visions um, where they're basically just acting out these atrocities and they learn it's this memorial on this planet that's broadcasting like this telepathic signal that basically forces people to like remember the atrocities that they committed, you know, what Yikes. the thing that the memorial is, yeah, is uh, is representing. And I, But I think this is perfect because it begins in this weird kind of thing. It takes us to another place that's even farther removed from the sci-fi place that we go every week where she's experiencing these dreams and who is this guy. And then it takes this, you know, weird sort of turn into what it is. Um, Bruce Davison is so good uh, in this episode as um, her father. Yes. I, I can't remember the character's name. And we talk about this on on the episode where we talk about this episode. Um, but it's not that he, he doesn't do like this Hitler thing. He's not like yelling at her that we must save the country or whatever. No. But the way that he plays on her... Um, as a father and the way that he manipulates her um, as a young woman who is in love with this person but he just creates these uh, this doubt and this uncertainty in her mind you I know, love about that yeah I this thought guy it's so insidious it's so good incredibly he, he's he's a great actor and he, even though he's not in very much of it he he absolutely shines when he's on screen and what I thought was the strongest part of this episode was the rhetoric um, regarding mm. Yeah, why why they were being taken away and ferried away. And what I really loved was was him completely undermining her, you know, making her doubt by, by saying, you know, this is crazy. Is this supposed to be some kind of conspiracy? Listen to what you're saying. And that yeah. is that is incredible because that's exactly what happens um in 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 real life. I mean I it it, it did remind me of, of what I know in 
yeah, sort of pre-Nazi Germany, when there was a lot of that stuff kind of going on, there was a lot of rumour and there was a lot of all of the rhetoric around, um, I can't remember the, uh, what were they called, the Anarans that... Um, the regressives? Regressives, that's it, yeah, yeah regressive. The the, um, the rhetoric surrounding them and sort of putting them down and saying that, likening them to children and saying that they were dirty, that they were a danger to themselves and to this progressive society, that 100% lines up with the kind of rhetoric that was used against the Jewish population um, in in Germany about, yeah, them being, fears of them being dirty, of them um, multiplying and kind of causing problems for the the good white Germans and um and yeah and it ended up just sort of escalating and escalating and the whole population was biased obviously yeah but um and this is this is where I would have loved to have seen the culture more because you know having lived in Germany there's a lot of uh reflection on on the holocaust and uh, this is mostly thanks to in the sort of 60s and 70s in West Germany, there was kind of a, there was a student revolution, and they started really memorialising um, the uh, you know Nazi Germany and the Holocaust, but in in ways of really you know looking at, at sites of concentration camps, building museums to um, explain, and also um, in schools teaching about how it happened so it can't happen again. And yeah. I think a lot of that has to do with the with the culture, with this sort of um, obedience to authority and the not wanting to to stand up and change things um, because it was this sort of passive uh, adherence to to authority that, that sort of allowed it to happen. Um, yeah. And yeah, I would have just liked to have known more about the Inaran society. Like, because these things don't just happen. I mean, they, they do quite a lot, but a lot of it, I you know, I had a look at other um, genocides as well. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, places where there is this incredibly strict authority i mean i looked at the british empire a lot when i was researching this because when it comes to denial well maybe i'll get to that in a bit but in any case the the culture it plays a very very large role in whether or not this actually happens so that's why i would have liked to have seen more of that and i felt like that was a weakness of the episode because they could have just gone more in more in depth to that rather than just like oh it's happening it's like okay but why and why is it being allowed but the yeah. rhetoric was a good part of that i think they tried to again you know that's 42 45 minutes or whatever it is i think they tried to contain that conflict uh within the father daughter sort of dynamic and mm -hmm. so he's he's clearly a, a person of uh interest and power in this regime and she's the one who's maybe on the fence doesn't have an investment and so maybe she represents the general populace and he's the yeah. one who's trying to talk her into it. Um, but yeah, other than that, we don't really know anything except for they like to wash their hands with these little balls or something. And these people don't. And so they <laughs> got to go. Like, I, yeah, it was a little <laughs> maybe unmotivated in that respect. Yeah. But but the rhetoric was great. And he was he was so in, yeah insidiously persuasive that you could see how that would work on, on the entire population. What I loved at the end is when we saw her spreading the same rhetoric to the, you know, telling the children about what happened. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that, that really, that was very chilling. And I think that was. Um, and it, right. And instead of a, um, a uh, like Holocaust memorial, mm. uh, you know, to like the murdered Jews or, or like they have in uh, Berlin, they build a memorial to their ethnic cleansing, basically. Mm, like yeah, they I know. build this, this door or whatever it is and say, oh, this is the, the door of progress. And it's just like the complete opposite. It's like a twisted sort of ugh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you you do get that in um, in cultures like, um, I mean, China is is quite a good example because they, you know, they continue to to oppress, um, you know, Tibet and also minorities like uh, the Falun Gong was something I looked at, mm. um, and yeah, all of their sort of memorials are about. Yeah, we're progressing and, and stuff for the good of for the good of the nation and for the good of the the state. Um, yeah. Whereas there's still some really terrifying things going on, and again, it gets into sort of conspiracy theory territory because you know mm. there are. Um, I I was in San Francisco and we actually met a group of um, Falun Gong uh, protesters in the park, um, and they were handing out pamphlets and talking about organ harvesting and stuff like that. 
And I was reading it and I was like, this this sounds crazy, but I looked into it and there's sort of statistics to support it. But obviously the state is very much saying, no, this isn't going on. And you do get into that thing of thinking, it sounds crazy, but man, it's, you know, it's happened before and it could happen again. So it's, it's, it is difficult with, uh, with stuff like that. But yeah, it, it's always this rhetoric of, of what's, what's for the good of, of the people in the state. And yeah. That was very chilling. Uh, before, during and after, you know, that controlling that conversation and especially after mm. with the denials and rewriting history and even getting, getting rid of evidence. I was um, researching, we're just a lot of Google hits on genocide for yeah. us this week, but uh, <laughs> I was uh, looking up um, genocidewatch.org. Uh, which is run by uh, Dr. Gregory Stanton, and he has outlined uh, 10 steps of genocide. Uh, not like a cookbook, like a how-to, but like things for <laughs> other nations to sort of look for mm. um, to say, uh, yeah, we're on our way to a genocide here. And a lot of the steps are, like you had mentioned before, um, like the, what he calls classification you know, or discrimination, like setting mm. a group apart and then dehumanizing them by saying uh, they do this, they do that, um, you know, or organizing uh, and polarizing like a uh, populace against them mm. and then just, you know, going through the process of persecuting them, separating them, disappearing them, mm. exterminating them, you know, whatever Isolating. it is. Yeah, exactly. Um, removing them from the regular populace. And all throughout the process, they've got uh, justifications, they've got reasons, they've got laws, why it has to be this way. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's just been seen way too many times. And they're very good at explaining it away. And I was looking at the um, the Armenian genocide, and it's really scary how how much that's denied uh, by Turkey. I mean, it's it's confused by the fact that it was actually, you know, Turkey wasn't really a country. It was It was sort of becoming a country, and it happened during the First World War, so... There was a lot of other stuff going on, but it's uh, it's estimated that one at least one million people died, um, possibly even upwards of uh, of one and a half million. Um, mm. And any any historians and journalists that talk about it, they they can be subject to um, prosecution for various excuses. And yeah. there was a great National Geographic article about it actually, where they went out into the villages and there's one person they spoke to who was a kid when it happened, and you know they they saw you know, villages being burned and people being driven out and bodies in the river and, and all of this. And um, I think the first thing he said to the journalist was, do you accept that it happened? And the journalist was like, well, I'm, you know, I'm just here doing my job. But this person just repeated, do you accept that it happened? And uh, and wouldn't wouldn't stop until they got a, a response about that. Because, mm. I mean, just imagine living living in that country and having to face the fact that it's just been swept under the rug. You know, they've just disappeared and the country itself won't even accept. They're just like, you know, it was war and there were losses on both sides when it was yeah. like, this was a specific campaign and there's history yeah. to support that. So it's it's frightening. And it's not even, I mean, just you, you think about what a, a normal citizen would say versus like what a government official or someone would say. And all of the government officials who made those decisions are all dead now. Like mm. there isn't any real reason that I can think of except national pride for a government to want to rewrite history or cover something up like that. But it all comes from this idea of, I can't believe that we did this. Like yeah. who, who made this choice? Like why I, I can't stomach being a person who lives in a country that did this. This is when I sort of start thinking about the British empire. And I think it, it's, I think it has to do with, whether or not there was a war fought over it, how much attention there was globally and whether that you know country won or lost because Germany, all the attention on the world was on it and we fought a huge war over it and they lost and so they were supposed to atone and right. they've done that. Um, but the country surrounding Germany, a sort of, you know, Poland and Austria have this history, even though Austria has laws against Holocaust denial, they also have a long history of kind of de denying their involvement, even though plenty of Austrian officials were part of the final solution. Poland's actually got really uh, uncomfortable lately. It's started, uh, it's, there's a new law in Poland that says that if you say anything to accuse Poland uh, or saying that it was complicit um, or collaborative in, in the Holocaust, then you have a fine and you can be, I have three years in prison. And um, they're actually using targeted ads on YouTube, like propaganda, um, 
to support this um, this new law. And it's kind of disturbing because, again, I mean, even though, yes, Poland was invaded and Polish people suffered as well, there are there are, there are events where they did also, there was really, really a huge um, act of uh, anti-Semitic violence in, you know, 1941. There was a massacre in one town, 1946. There was a massacre in another town of um, Jewish survivors. Um, and so they're trying to cover it up because I think, or not, not cover it up, but definitely deny their involvement because they weren't the losing country. Right. But when it comes to like the British, um, the British stuff, this is something that makes me uncomfortable, and this is what I think the episode reminded me of most, um, because we don't really learn about the British Empire in schools at all. At least we didn't when I was growing up, um, and yet there are there are terrible atrocities that were committed over the long period of time that we had this sort of this foothold in so many different countries. Yeah. And what's disturbing about it is that in uh, 2012, it was revealed that a lot of records were destroyed in the 1960s, specifically about the um, Mau Mau rebellion in um, in Kenya, I believe. Um, but w- <laughs> there was a report in uh, December of last year that whenever someone went to look um, for records for you know historical purposes or for an article, this article was published in The Guardian. The Guardian is pretty... It keeps keeping tabs on on this. Um, sure. Whenever they went back to have a look and, and get those records out of the uh, official archives, they'd gone missing, and <laughs> gone missing specifically after being checked out by civil servants within the British government. Okay. And uh, so it's like on loan to such and such, or gone missing while on loan to such and such. And right. um, it's it's something. It's because we never lost a war, and we want to believe there's this kind of over. This, this like hangover of imperial entitlement that I think that um, the UK sure. has. And we don't want to let go of this idea of us being yeah. on top of the world and our wonderful well, royals and our wonderful world. <laughs> yeah, it's not just you. We call it American exceptionalism over here. I mean, yeah, you've got that whole thing as well. Yeah. And when I think about, you know, very similar things to what you've been mentioning, uh, you know, the things that America has been involved in as far as oppression and atrocities go, there, there, there's a huge refusal to talk about them even here mm-hmm. uh, in the land of free speech. You know, it, we don't talk about them until it's a forced issue, and then you'll just get some kind of statement. I remember when I was in school as a kid. You know, we learned a little bit about the fate of uh, some of the First Nations people here in the early days of America, or hearing about like what happened to Japanese citizens in World War II. Oh, yeah, um, and it was barely a sidebar to a lot of my history education. Seriously? It would just be yeah, it would be just like you know a few minutes. Uh, during the World War II uh, week or something like that. That's you know, incredible. I learned, I learned more from uh, Dances with Wolves about Native Americans than I did, <laughs> you know, about American peoples in the 19th century this in school. Sh- this shouldn't surprise me. We actually, we I had a module on the American West and a good, like, half to three quarters of that book was all about, yeah, the, the attempted genocide slash maybe genocide of the Native Americans and just, like, the wars sure. and the Trail of Tears and everything. We learned yeah. about that. It's funny that, that you guys don't but then we don't learn about all the terrible things that we did to the world so i guess i suppose it's just I, yeah yeah i just i think it doesn't fit into the narrative at least just speaking as an american i don't think it fits into the uh, the narrative of the american public which is that we are a nation of many but it's ironic i think because it's a homogenized many like anybody can come here we'll take anybody but then once you're here you have to look and act you know a certain way and there's mm. no way that we would turn against people who are within our own nation that we have supposedly accepted or, or wow. made treaties with. So it's still the same kind of idea of speaking out is almost eroding the idea of, of the nation state and all Americans. And it's seen as an attack upon America as a concept rather than just an admitting of what happened in history. Which is yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I That idea of a people or a nation, you know, even the ones who weren't necessarily in power having to deal and uh, deal with this and just countenance the idea of this thing happening is what fascinates me. There's a really great episode of DS9 um, that we talked about earlier on uh, the show this year. Um, duet. Duet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and if uh, listeners um, aren't familiar, they should listen to that episode. But I'll say real quickly, it's the episode where Kira has uh, caught this Cardassian um, Maritza, who was the commandant uh, at this horrible work camp that she helped liberate during the war. 
And as the episode, uh, it just runs through the entire fascism playbook you know, with the character in question. Mm. Uh, you know, he is talking about how the people were dirty and they needed to get rid of them. And people, um, the other, the Cardassians loved it when they did it. Uh, it's played wonderfully by uh, Harris Yulin. Mm. Um and he talks about how, oh, they couldn't take care of themselves. You know, we had a vision and we deserve to be the rulers. And of course, you find out by the end of the episode, uh, spoilers, by the way, <laughs> that this guy wasn't even the guy. He was some other guy. He was like a clerk. He was very yeah. low down at this camp. And he just had nothing to do with the atrocities, but he just watched them go on day after day. And he just could not take, he could not even process what they were doing as a people and his reaction was that he kind of loses it and he takes it upon himself to pretend to be this guy, this monster, so that the truth can get out there. Yeah. Because, of course, the, the Cardassian government at this time is pretty much following the playbook of denying or just repressing or just sort of uh, it's the same. Off. It's the same kind of rhetoric. You know, what we were doing was for the good of Bajor. You know, you get a lot of yes. that throughout the entire series, especially from Gul Dukat. Um, yeah. And yeah, it, it's great because in the end, you they kind of start admitting, oh no, what we did was bad. But not not in a big way, never in a sweeping statement. But yeah, in that episode in particular, I love it because it's ultimately guilt. You know, this whole this whole thing is him just, he he's saying all this stuff and he's playing the part, but he's playing the part so that he will be held accountable, so that he will be prosecuted and um, and there will be some kind of comeuppance. Because yeah. even though he was a clerk, he also stood by and did nothing. And the guilt of that just completely ate away at him. And it's, it's fantastic because you get to see both sides. You get to see the part that he's playing. And even though later you end up, you, you um, discover that it is a part, it still gives you an insight into their mindset. But it also provides a fantastic commentary on what it's like to be on the side of the oppressor and to do nothing and how that still affects you and how it's still just it's incredibly psychologically traumatic to the the guilt of having stood by and done nothing and been part of it and watched these horrors and yeah. um it's oh, it's an incredible episode did you ever see have you uh watched breaking bad i haven't oh okay well this isn't gonna make any sense then <laughs> <laughs> i know of it you know there's uh you know there's the main guy and then there's this, like the younger guy that helps him and at mm -hmm. one point the younger guy goes to the police uh because of all the bad things this guy's done and the the, the main guy is very smart and he kind of finds a way out of these traps they put him in and the young guy at one point just screams like he can't keep getting away with it because <sighs> he just feels he he wants to stop the guy but also he feels bad about the things that he's done himself that the, the guy has like got him to do mm. and so it's it's that same kind of thing for me at least um having watched breaking bad uh where it's not like he just can't stand the idea that they have done this and that it seems like they're getting away with it, or at least some people are. Yeah, and it's very similar in, in Remember. It's it's someone who was kind of complicit, who allowed it to happen and, and is now desperately trying to, to get those messages out there, which is a really interesting concept. Yeah, and also that she feels... She has to do it like while she's sleeping or while somebody else is sleeping. Like it's still a very secretive thing. Mm -hmm. I don't think that we're told um, if there's some sort of penalty uh, or some sort of reprisal that will be on her. But it's something that she waits until she's essentially dying of old age to do, mm -hmm. uh, which I think speaks a lot about their current society. Yeah. I also found the ending very interesting in Janeway deciding not to do anything herself but then allowing um balana to go and uh try to, to to send the message on i thought that was a very that was a great ending anyway but um i was i was a bit like why why are you sort of enforcing this kind of very federation idea of we we must not get involved i mean you're in you're in a different part of the galaxy you can do whatever you want and it's it's a very it's an interesting <laughs> kind of thing where jane was such she's that kind of a captain she is the federation so wherever she goes the federation goes yeah. um and i i don't know what do you think the morality of that is do you think that they should have stayed and tried to get the truth out or do you think it was really none of their business i think that they're not journalists do you know what i mean like yeah. they are because they could just if there was like a space internet like in that area <laughs> they could just go look what we heard about the anarans or whatever but you're right like she is 
and they keep saying they're not military commanders, but she is a military commander, yeah. basically, who is representing her nation and her um, military. And so I think she made the right choice. But I think that personally, she can do whatever she wants. And I like the fact at the end of the episode that they're like, OK, so you guys are going to trade with us. And she's like, no, nah, get out of here. Yeah. We're, not, we're not trading with you. Like you can she can, has to follow the, you know, the rules of her nation and whatever they may be. But personally, she can do whatever she wants. Mm. And as the captain, like the number one person. Uh, she has a lot of influence over her society, and I kind of—I th- don't think they meant it, but I think it's kind of a um, a suggestion or a guide for what we can do today or what our countries can do. It may yes. be that Turkey doesn't want to acknowledge the Armenian genocide, and so as a country, we can't just say, "Well, we're not going to trade with Turkey or you know help them if they need help," but we can kind of socially pressure them to oh, yeah. to rectify that. And that is something that I know it's sort of a an international diplomacy measure where if there's it, it's possible for countries to yeah refuse trade or to put a diplomatic pressure on countries if if there's something really terrible going on. But um I you know I don't know a huge amount of, about geopolitics, but that was something as a child I I would, you know, find out all of these terrible things that were going on in in the world and I'd say, well, why don't we just do that? Why don't we, we don't have to go in, we shouldn't go in there with our troops or anything, but if we want to help them, we can apply diplomatic pressure. You know, if if we have all this money and all this stuff to trade, but then you grow up and you realize, oh no, we actually want stuff from them. And that's why we're not going to do anything. And also, you know, sanctions mean a lot of empty bellies Mm. of people who aren't making decisions at all. So Yeah, it's, it's so difficult. And... I think that was, yeah, it wasn't really an interplanetary incident. It was very much internal, or it seemed to be very internal to the Inaran people. So yeah. if if it was in the Alpha Quadrant, and if these people were part of the Federation, then 100% Janeway would have had um, every right to sort of go in there and say, right, the truth needs to come out, because if this happens again, you could end up doing it to some other planet in the Federation, and that sure. isn't that isn't okay. But yeah. this is an isolated planet in a in a quadrant that we basically still know nothing about. That's another problem with the lack of background, too, is because if this sector of space is, let's say, like an alternate history World War II sector of space where Germany, you know, won, mm. uh, as Voyager comes in, maybe, you know, there's another, there's a bunch of other systems or planets that don't even talk to these guys. Yeah. And so Voyager gets there and like they're the first people to talk to these guys in a while <laughs> they're like oh ooh, we can trade with somebody somebody wants to talk to us that doesn't know about the horrible thing we did oh that's such uh, a and great voyager, concept and voyager might find out something by talking to other you know aliens who are like no no we don't talk to those guys and then we find out what the secret is but that's not like an hour show you know, no our was... show is just oh we've got bird nest aliens on board and they're gonna do this and that Oh, that's such a great idea. I, I have a lot of fun thinking about all the things that Voyager could have been. And I was about to make a point <laughs> about how what I would have loved to have seen in Voyager is them building up the, the cultures and society and network that already existed in the um, Delta Quadrant and us discovering that. But instead, they're just sort of hopping from planet to planet and they're all very isolated. And you saying that just made me think, wow, wouldn't that have been great? Season one, they go in. They end up making an ally of this really powerful, really nice, or so it seems, um, society. And then slowly over the course of episodes or even seasons, you discover, you know, as they get sort of deeper into the web of this, that they're actually oppressing the other um, the other uh, planets. And then, hey, maybe even this is a parallel of the Federation. The reason they allied was because they thought they were similar. And then Voyager realizes they've actually exacerbated the situation. They have to turn around and fix what their involvement and man that would have been a great show that was planned this is really gonna yeah. break your heart oh. because that they actually did want to do that uh, uh later in this season uh, i'm going to talk to eric stillwell who wrote the episode prime factors oh. for voyager which is a first season episode where they meet this race that has a technology that allows them to transport yeah. essentially light years you know away yeah i remember and that yeah, and they're like a very like, oh, have a have a drink. They're like a very like Epicurean sort mm. of race. And they were planned to be a long-running uh, antagonist for the show because they are sort of like the dark side of the Federation. Like they have technology that is as good or better than the Federation's and they are committed to enjoying themselves. But it's that like sort of dark side of like, 
you know, Lotus Eatery, you know, we don't want to do any social good. We don't commit ourselves to service like the Federation does. We just kind of want what we want and we're very selfish. Mm. And so we would have seen how they clash. Now, that was nixed because, and I kind of agree with this, I don't know if that's TV. <laughs> like, I don't know if you can, <laughs> you can make a TV show out of that, but it would have been like a really great you know, novel or something like that. I, that does frustrate me because I also, when I was talking to, um, Oh, I think it was Ronald D. Moore. It may have been Iris Stephen Bauer. I did those interviews very close together. But one of them said that the original idea for Voyager was to kind of have them going out Battlestar Galactica style and, and sort of it being a darker story and them being oh, yeah. sort of chased definitely by the Borg all the way through the, the quadrant and it being more about survival and really looking at what it would be like with them not having the replicators and just... Uh, it being this very nitty gritty thing, but yeah, no, the the network didn't want to do it. And again, this goes back to <laughs> Deep Space Nine, which was the dark sheep of the franchise, which had been on TV for so long, and they didn't want to do another one that was also kind of experimental and dark and, and ahead of its time. They wanted just the nice, the calm, the very Star Trekky thing, and that's why you know Voyager ended up being the way it was. Yeah. Um, but man, that would have been so great. I think it would have made great TV, but I think maybe it would have made great TV for today. Probably not for the sort of late 90s, early noughties. I suppose, yeah. Also, it yeah, it would have been sort of like the Gamma Quadrant, like if they had gone to mm. the Delta Quadrant and we find out that, like in the Gamma Quadrant with the Dominion, there is some sort of large empire that we don't know about that sort of owns the whole thing. You've kind of got that with the Borg. Yeah, but, you know, the Borg and the Borg. That. They do that kind of lazily because they're like, oh, yeah, the, the Borg are like uh, ravaging all the planets and that's why we're seeing them and they with at a low level of technology and they haven't formed any kind of network. It's, it's that. And it's like, right. wow, that's... And they say that over like two lines of dialogue in one of the early episodes. And you're like, oh, okay, great. That's fun. <laughs> but why wouldn't there be like a whole consortium of nations who have banded together? Yes. Um, federalized, if you will, in order to fight this threat. Like, a rebellion. That's sometimes get uh nations coming together you know to fight something else yes um i completely agree i think you could have an entire show pitching um other ideas for what voyager could have been <laughs> and i feel really bad taking pot shots at it all the time because it's not a bad show it yeah. just it's a for me it's a waste of concept i feel like every time they 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 go near an interesting idea they just blaze right past it as yeah. quickly as they can yeah. and uh, whereas you know enterprise also not a great show but they're very dedicated to their concept you know they do try and every single episode they're like let's see how this feeds into the greater narrative and i'm like you're not doing it well but you're trying and i appreciate that and the concept really itself went is for interesting. It. yeah there's a couple of, they really went for it on some of their ideas and you have to kind of respect them for that mm. um you know, I wanted to talk about other uh, genocides or uh, other episodes that dealt with genocides mm. in Trek. But as I was looking through, there are very few times when it is specifically the subject. Mm. You will find out that a bunch of people died or that somebody killed a bunch of people. But it's usually just, you know, to mark them as the worst the person, you know, yeah. the worst sinner. Yeah. And it's very rare that they actually deal with it specifically. Um, there's an episode of Next Generation where uh, they meet this guy. You know, who's, he looks like an old guy, but he's an energy being, and he gets mad and he kills like all these aliens, like the, all members of the race in the galaxy, just wipes them out. And it's done in that sort of like '60s sci-fi that I don't think is very good for a '80s television show, <laughs> yeah. where all the Enterprise does is just find out about that. Yeah, they and then can't... they wave bye bye. Yep, yep, they can't <laughs> they can't do anything about it. He says in the dialogue that you can't judge me, like no one can judge me for this the worst crime. <laughs> and so it's just like, huh, okay. Um see you next week. Like there's it's no real commentary on on what he did, except yeah. it's bad. That's a, I think that's a shame and I think that's why this episode of Voyager is even though it's not hugely detailed, is actually a lot more interesting than those kind of very allegorical, like you said, very 60s like this bad man secret bye-bye. Yeah, uh, right. Because they actually go into the psychology of denial and especially because if you think about it, the most people don't kind of know about the other kind of genocides, like the, the Armenian genocide. And like you said, um, things are definitely covered up with uh, American history and definitely with British history. So the one in the forefront of everyone's mind is, um, yeah, the Second World War and, and the, the Holocaust in Germany. Mm. Um, so from that point of view, it's 
it's interesting to, to watch remember because it's surprising to us for this thing to happen and for there not to be some kind of reckoning but for it to be covered up and denied because yeah. in what we know of history this bad, big bad thing happened and you know it it every the whole world ended up knowing about it so i thought it was yeah it was an interesting considering that trek doesn't tend to go into this in, in detail it was a different take and it was it was nice to see the kind of the denial and the the upholding of a certain society because of the reason that you know they had to cast these people out because they felt like they were a threat maybe and um mm. you know that was that was definitely very interesting and then you look into the his look into real world history and you see oh there are so many parallels i don't know whether the writers were looking when they wrote it but with the rhetoric and with with the covering up loads of loads of real world parallels as well so oh, it yeah. is it's interesting Sometimes our heroes get a chance to genocide and they don't because they're our heroes. Yay. <laughs> which is also, again, not very, that's kind of a shallow commentary, but uh, it's it's in Next Generation, I think, that they get a chance to put like a program in a Borg's head or something like that. And they think that yes. if they send this guy back, the program will get one. into the Borg computers and like, and yeah, it's like making them look at a 3D eye poster and they, they won't be able to handle it or something. Yeah. Um, and they decide not to do that. Um, they struggle with that decision. But yeah, ultimately they really wanted to do it. Yeah, but ultimately they're satisfied with their refusal to do it, um, as a, you know they should be. But it's a far cry, or perhaps an evolution from what we see in Star Trek Discovery, mm. uh, whereas at the end of the first season, the Federation basically says, I think genocide is the answer <laughs> to the Klingon problem. I know. And they need <laughs> like one woman to say, what? No. What are you talking about? I know. I know. I mean, I have uh, I have many issues with Discovery, and um, I actually watched rewatched that episode uh, recently, and it is. I feel like they could have done that with the Federation um, if they'd actually built up to it more, because mm. they kind of paint the Federation as just bad the whole way yeah. through Discovery. There's, you know, Giorgio says some cool things about the Federation, and then there's one war, and suddenly, oh no, they're like basically evil. Right. Um, with you know, with how they treated the tardigrade, because even and this really, really pissed me off actually, because it gets to a point where they're like, oh no, if the tardigrade is sentient, maybe we shouldn't use it anymore. But it's like, um, you're the people that should that supposedly are all vegan now. Like that's in the, the original <laughs> right. series and uh, the Next Generation. I think. Well, there's definitely it's definitely in the Next Generation. Riker's like, we haven't eaten meat in hundreds of years, right? And it's like, so you shouldn't even be treating a, you know, non sentient life form this way because it's still alive and it still can feel pain and it's uh i did i didn't feel like there was enough of a a reason for the federation to to do that and the fact that it took one woman to to bring them back from the brink of becoming something evil it it was an interesting concept but i felt like it was the build-up of like what like 11 episodes before that wasn't wasn't enough to justify um and especially because you've got 10 years until the federation becomes this beautiful shining thing in the original series so it's like where's right. what what happened there so something big must have happened yeah, yeah. even Sarek is on board uh and you could argue that mm. that's you know logic and not emotion but you think Sarah could be like uh, maybe eliminating an entire race might cause more problems for the quadrant. I don't yeah. know. I feel like both Discovery and Enterprise have, have bit, um, bought into the same idea of Vulcans as being the bad guys. Yeah, it's right, like, right. No, they're supposed to be the... It's not just logic, it's also compassion and this very kind of almost Taoist philosophy and, and some really, really lovely things that form the foundation of you know, what Vulcans are supposed to be and what they kind of brought to Earth and how we were able to form the Federation together. We're supposed to be the messed up ones. They're supposed yeah. to help us. They've never genocided. Well, this is the thing. Enterprise was like, actually, they fought loads of wars with the Andorians and they got pretty <laughs> murky with yeah. that. So it's like, oh, great, thanks. Um, but I just feel like with Discovery, you can take all of these canon examples and, and, and try and explain away the choices that the writers made. But ultimately... It's a product of TV climate at the moment where the networks want the darkest thing possible. They want a kind of Game of Thrones style show, and but they want, but they also have a property that so they have this property that there are you know 
millions of fans across the world or at least hundreds of thousands of fans and it's incredibly lucrative and they want to try and combine those two but star trek is not supposed to be the dark game of thrones style show and it never was and that's not what made it popular and i feel like discovery is what happens when you try and mosh those things together to make money Um, that's true so hopefully season two won't be quite like that hopefully um Dark elements have always been popular, usually with the fan base, though. You know, Section 31 is something that was mentioned in a couple episodes of DS9. And now it's, you know, there's a hundred books about it. Uh, it's showing up on, on uh, Discovery uh, in season one. And of course, hopefully, hopefully, probably more in season two. And also, you know, when we were talking about genocide, they tried to genocide the founders. They did! By... Oh my god, I can't believe I forgot to say that. They did. That's yeah. how the war ended. Man. Right. Oh my gosh, I can't, because that that does get put away and denied completely. And that's what something really aggravated me at the end of uh, Deep Space Nine is that I love the idea of Section 31. I think it's great. And um, but it was thrown in so late and it was never resolved. And and it just completely tarnishes your idea of the Federation. And Iris Stephen Barrett, she said to me that it was his final dig at the Federation. And he would have seen if the story had continued what he would have liked to have done would have been for the federation officers to be both the enemy and the reformists that they would have to come to terms with the fact that there was this really rotten uh part of the federation and 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 try and just try and deal with it um that his his dig was that the federation uh was too good to get its hands dirty so they yes let another sort of section take care of that exactly that okay. they that they were hypocrites essentially okay, and yeah, it, sure. it was him it was him really saying you know, this beautiful, shining future that Roddenberry envisioned, it can't exist because... But if you look at um, the... Within the context of the episode In the Pale Moonlight, that was a time where Cisco had to do... Had to get his hands dirty in order to achieve an end that was good overall. So I right. think what Iris Stephen Bear was trying to do with Section 31 was actually to say... To say both at the same time, to say, actually, sometimes you do need to do the really difficult things... Sure. But maybe you shouldn't go that far. Maybe there shouldn't be this corrupt organization at the heart of the Federation. <laughs> so what worries me about Discovery is that it's way too early to deal with Section 31. Section 31 needs to be dealt with, but they can't uncover it and reform the Federation because that wouldn't line up with canon. So they're just going to have... I'm, I'm worried they're going to kind of glorify it. And that would be oh, the yes. worst thing. Absolutely. Well, they got the cool black badges. Yeah. Exactly. Already glorifying it. Cool spy <laughs> things, except it's they try to kill an entire species. So that's... Maybe, well, <laughs> maybe it can start as a fun, uh, you know, in like Flint, like uh, 60s spy thing yeah. uh, in Discovery. And then later on, it evolves into this just cold math of yes. just like wiping out whole planets uh, for the good of the Federation thing. That's really my hope. And I think they could actually do a lot with with that with kind of getting into it thinking, yay, we're spies. Oh no, it's really bad. And thinking they've stamped it out. But us as an audience, having this horrible dramatic irony, it, it, well, those of us who've watched Deep Space Nine and uh, read the books, knowing that, oh no, it's going to pop up again. You can't destroy it because it's going to be really powerful in a in, in hundred or so years' time. So yeah, they could do something interesting there. It's like Hydra in the Marvel Yes, films. Yes, it yeah. really, really is. I think that was okay. a very good one. But, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the fact that the Federation nearly committed a genocide and then it's... It's never talked about. No one ever publicizes it. So is the oh, Federation just as bad as the Anarans? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, for the Federation, who uh, they're so noble, mm. even coming close to it is something that they should teach in the history books. Like the day that we almost did this. Yes. Yeah. And that would have been that probably if you'd had a show set after that in the Alpha Quadrant, not, you know, being Voyager in the Delta Quadrant. Um then that could have been the turning point if you had a, a, a long show dealing with the fallout of the Dominion War and learning about Section 31. The turning point would really have been, oh, the Federation planned to and an, an attempted genocide. Yeah. So that has to come out. And that would have been the, the kind of the point where the public where Section 31 got made public. But yeah, unless they do time travel stuff in Discovery. We're not going to get that. I hope we end up getting another show set in that time period that deals with that. But it's been decades since that was on television. So, yeah. 
I always wonder how much latitude Starfleet has as the military wing of the United Federation of Planets mm. to act because you always we only de- I mean this show is you know set on a Starfleet ship that's our window into the universe but you always see uh, Admiral Cornwall or so- somebody coming out and saying all right we've decided we're going to destroy Kronos or, or whatever is any of this put to a vote to like right. Federation citizens? Like, can can they get out their little space iPhones and go, do you want to go to war? Yes or yes, no? no. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. That's a good point. Um, because there's there's the Starfleet com- sort of, they've got this militaristic structure of there being admirals um, yeah. as well. So you've got to think, okay, the orders must come from the admirals. But then there's also the Federation Council. Um, and in, yeah, in a war situation, whose job is it to make the decision is it democratic or is it starfleet maybe it's like um you know in america you can have um troop actions and then you have to actually declare war but if you never declare war you were never at war Mm, sneaky yeah sounds like some section 31 propaganda there (laughs) (laughs) thanks so much for talking with me uh where can people find you online oh online i am on Twitter at Extra Tumerial, and I'm currently setting up a blog, but I haven't decided the name of it yet, so I can't okay. plug that. <laughs> tweet, tweet to Eleanor on on Twitter for uh, with a blog name ideas. Yes, please, I need them. <laughs> well, thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Eleanor for chatting with me. As I said before, she'll be appearing on a future episode of Enterprising Individuals to talk about another bracingly grim episode of DS9, so watch out for that. She may also appear on an upcoming bonus episode about Star Trek Discovery, so look forward to that as well. You can follow Eleanor on Twitter at Extra Tremerial. That's at Extra, like Extra, T-R-E-M-E-E-R. I-A-L. And I recommend that you do that. You also have to read her excellent piece on io9 about the 25th anniversary of DS9, where she interviews Ron Moore and Ira Bear about the show and its legacy. I wish I had written that article, which is the best compliment a writer can give another, I guess. It's great. Check it out. There's a link in the show notes. If you want to read more on the subject of genocide and society's reactions to it, may I recommend A Problem from Hell, America and the Age of Genocide by Samantha Power. It's a Pulitzer Prize winning book that looks at the failure of American and Western leaders to stop genocide in the 20th and 21st centuries. Power was a Balkan war correspondent and she draws on her own experiences as well as interviews with top Washington policymakers to assemble a picture of the current global crisis and what we're doing or not doing as the case may be to stop it. I'll include a link to Problem from Hell in the show notes. You can click on it and be taken right to Amazon where you can purchase the book and a small part of that purchase will go to help our show at no extra cost to you. You can also go to enterprisingindividuals.com and click through our Amazon banner to reach Amazon. Every time you click through Enterprising Individuals and make a purchase on Amazon, a little bit of that purchase goes to us here at the show, again, at no extra cost to you and helps keep the warp core lit here. So click on our links or through our banner. You can even bookmark it. It's really easy to support the show. And maybe you're saying, wow, I've I've had enough dark stuff for now. Where are the tribbles? To which I would say, wait like five minutes and you are going to like what you hear. But I would also say if you like tribbles and you like the kind of insightful discussion and erudite guests you hear on Enterprising Individuals, why not support the show by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. It's there that you can sign up to be a crew member for the show for a small monthly donation, and you can get access to our exclusive subscriber content, like our live shows, including our upcoming live show with Melinda Snodgrass at Convergence 2018 in July, also my DS9 rewatch recaps, plus our new episode commentaries, which are debuting soon. You can get show merchandise and more. Just head to patreon.com forward slash EISTpod, and for as little as $1 a month, you will be a member of the crew. As always, anything you can contribute to the show will be appreciated and will help keep us flying. Thanks. We're not out of the depressing woods just yet, listener. In lieu of a social media comment this week, I wanted to draw attention to an important social cause. Earlier in the year, the news came out that John Paul Stoyer, musician and former actor who played the first Alexander on TNG, had died. And a report came out this week from the Portland PD that the cause of death was suicide. John went by Johnny Jules, and his bandmates loved him. He was the lead singer of the band, and he opened a vegan restaurant as well in Portland, which, (laughs) good scouting on that market. Uh, He was only 33 years old. It's extremely tragic. 
He's going to be missed by a lot of people. And all this is on the heels of the national news stories of designer Kate Spade and chef and CNN raconteur Anthony Bourdain, both dying by suicide, which was totally unexpected and shocking in each case. But it's always shocking, isn't it? We keep things inside and we can't share how we feel and we think no one can understand us. But I think it's a lot like, well, it's like Star Trek. There are people out there. There are people who know what you're going through and they will understand you. And even if they don't, they're willing to listen and they're ready to care about you. I think we hear that a lot, but we forget when we're in crisis. But it is true. If you or anyone you know is going through stress, going through pain, take this number 1-800-273-8255. That's the number for the National Suicide Hotline. It's open 24 hours a day. It's 1-800-273-8255. You're not alone. There are people who love you. There's people that want to help you. One more time, 1-800-273-8255. Also, this is the part of the show where I tell you that you can contact the show on Facebook and Twitter by searching for EIST Pod. And that goes double for anyone who is looking for someone to listen. Trekkies are a family. We have to be. We're we're giant nerds who like a 50-year-old TV show. Uh, And we're not ashamed. Will Wheaton has a great post on Medium where he talks about his anxiety and his chronic depression and how he's learned to not be ashamed. He makes this awesome point about how there is nothing embarrassing or shameful about reaching out, asking for help, talking to someone. So please do. The world with all its faults is still better because you're in it. You can always reach this show by email at eistpod at gmail.com. And as always, we're waiting to receive your transmission. <sighs> okay, catharsis, meaning literally a purge, a cleansing. <sighs> All right, on to better things. That's it for this supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals. If you're an Apple Podcast listener and you haven't yet, why not look us up on Apple Podcasts and make sure that you're subscribed to the show. Also, write us a little review if the spirit moves you and give us a rating at the very least because we'd appreciate it. If you're not on Apple Podcasts, you can still subscribe to the show on Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you get our show from. And if you leave positive comments and ratings and reviews on those platforms as well, we would be eternally grateful. Next week on Enterprising Individuals. You want tribbles? You got them. And all the troubles that they bring. Authors and Trek experts Paula M. Block and Terry J. Erdman join the show next week to give the definitive oral history of one of Deep Space Nine's silliest yet most lovingly crafted episodes that stands as a love letter to tribbles, the original series, and Trek fandom at large. It's Trials and Tribulations, next time on Enterprising Individuals. And until then, I'm your Captain Caliban signing off and saying live long and prosper. Yeah.